I'd like to welcome my listeners to the Truth Sayer Report, hosted by Jeffrey Hawkins. The global mission of the podcast, the Truth Sayer Report, is to explore and examine historical events and how they shape current events and, most importantly, our lives. The Truth Sayer Report, episode 13, There's No Place Like Home, 1971, when the black athlete stayed home. It's amazing that the black athlete was not allowed to participate in college sports in the South before the 1960s. Unfortunately, U.S. history is littered with institutional racist discrimination, which, too, dictated the denial of opportunity to represent one's state schools and or play in front of their families. Obviously, the South was distinctly unique in its public disdain for the black population, which carried over even into the sports world. The 1950s brought about more division and strife because of the Negro's desire for inclusion into U.S. society, meaning full citizenship and the rights thereof. First, the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education Topeka, Kansas case, which the Supreme Court mandated school immigration and equal funding. The backlash was swift, with many states incorporating the rebel battle flag of the bars and stripes into their state flags, greater opposition to voting rights, and the creation of the Dixiecrats. The Dixiecrats were led by Georgia Senators Richard Russell and Herman Talmadge, along with Alabama Governor George Wallace, who proclaimed segregation today, tomorrow, and forever. In 1957, a young Baptist preacher by the name of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. organized a resistance demonstration called the Montgomery Bus Boycott, which incensed the Southern white leadership to its core. The structured power foundation of the Southern population was fearful of change. Ultimately, this young preacher would become the leader of the now known civil rights movement. Soon, the country would never be the same. In the 1960s, the civil rights movement was in full swing in its numerous victories such as the 1963 and 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1964 Voting Rights Act, the Great Society, the Hotel Motel Accommodations Act, etc. signaled the changing of minds in the country, particularly in the North and the West. However, the South was still resistant and remained at a fever pitch with intolerance. In 1966, the NCAA Division I Basketball Championship pitted the powerhouse all-white Kentucky Wildcats of the Southeastern Conference against the integrated upstarts of Texas Western Miners, later known as Texas El Paso University. Many of the Texan Western players were from the South and had elected to play for the sports open-minded coach Don Haskins and stay home. Don Haskins, in a political and psychological mood, started five black players and won the championship by a score of 72-65. to 65. However, the victory was much bigger and important than the score. In 1967, the first black football player to be granted a scholarship and play in the SEC was Nathan Nate Northington of the Kentucky Wildcats. Unfortunately, Nate Northington's roommate and best friend, Greg Page, another black football player, received a spinal cord injury in practice, which he would later die from. It left Northington distraught soon after he left Kentucky. Daryl Hill would become the first black player in the Atlantic Coast Conference, the ACC, at the University of Maryland in 1963. In 2015, officials at Maryland sponsored an effort to erect a statue of Daryl Hill, stating, Hill may not be Frederick Douglass, but actually, 
They both put their lives in danger to make a statement to change the culture. The Sports News Network, ESPN, aired one of their famous and popular segments of their 30 for 30 series entitled The Wyoming 14. In 1969, the Wyoming Cowboys were a perennial top 20 football program, and after achieving three consecutive Western Athletic Conference championships, the university was expected to compete for the NC2A Division I National Football Championship. The team had numerous black players who had been recruited from the South due to the racial segregation in Jim Crow. The school had been a safe and fertile space for black athletes. The 1960s were a turbulent time, and the team was 4-0 when a major racial issue arose. The issue was, the year before they had played Brigham Young University, BYU in Provost, Utah. The BYU players and fans had maintained a continuous atmosphere of disrespect and hostility by shouting racial epithets during the entire game, including before and after. This year's game would be played in Lyon, Wyoming. So the black players felt, with the current support of the university and the fans, the community would be favorable in offering support for their display of wearing black armbands to demonstrate their displeasure of their treatment and that black people were barred from the priesthood of the Church of Latter-day Saints, along with the belief that black people did not have souls. They approached head coach Lloyd Eaton, and he flat out refused to support their efforts and stated any player wearing a black armband or demonstrating the issues would be dismissed from the team. The university and the fans sided with Coach Eaton. The players refused to play and were all dismissed from the team. Without the black players, the Wyoming Cowboys finished the season with a 6-4 and four record. Interestingly, during this time, my father was an executive with a Fortune 500 company located in Utah. Therefore, he's a frequent traveler to the state. He tells of a story when attempting to purchase gas for his rental car in Ogden, he was denied service. We must remember at this time, gas stations were full service. The gas attendant not only would not serve him, but would not acknowledge him either. The issue was greater than just race. Blacks were not thought of as humans. It was more like a dog driving the car, and apparently the gas attendant was bewildered. The sad tale for the Wyoming Cowboys was they only had one winning season in the decade of the 70s. Coach Eaton was fired. However, the greater sadness was their window to win a NC to a national football championship closed because of 1971, the year the black athlete stayed home. The events which led to the Wyoming 14 became the first pivotal moment in the desire for black athletes deciding to remain in the South. The next and the most decisive event was the 1970 football matchup between the all-white Alabama Crimson Tide and the fully integrated University of Southern California Trojans, including their starting black quarterback named Jimmy Jones. The Southern belief was that all white teams were superior, and the integrated USC squad had no chance of victory. The USC Trojans, their coach Jim McKay, and their star running back, Sam Bam Cunningham, would destroy the belief with a 42-21 victory. Coach Bear Bryant would go on to say, I may not be the first coach in the SEC with a black player, but I definitely won't be the third. In 1971, several SEC schools would integrate their football programs and later other sports with Southern black athletes. The most significant signings were Lyman Jim Mitchell at Alabama, quarterback Condridge Holloway at Tennessee, and the original Fab Five at Georgia with NFL running back Horace King as a key recruit. 
The arrival of these black athletes changed the sports landscape of the South and the overall perspective of the black people in the modern age. Over the decade of the 1970s, the trend became even clearer that the black athletes wanted to represent their home state schools and compete in front of their families and friends. The three athletic conferences, which had been the greatest benefactors of this change of attitudes, would include the SEC, the ACC, and the SWC, which is now known as the Big 12. In addition, the interest of basketball programs skyrocketed and propelled the sport into a money-making endeavor. Major college and university football and basketball program revenue helped to support all other collegiate sports, thus fueling the issue of black athletes as cash cows. Moreover, the issue of overrepresentation as opposed to the general student population surface. An example would be the University of Georgia, where both the football and basketball programs are represented with over 70% black athletes, but the school's overall black student population has never exceeded 9% in the school's 237-year history. Currently, the University of Georgia's general student population is 36,000, with around 2,100 black students. Overall, the acceptance of black athletes in Southern schools have been favorable. Their value is recognized and appreciated for the most part. They have been welcomed, particularly when they have helped turn programs from losers to winners. Winning major sports programs produce greater interest in scooter applications, sports donations, department studies and research recognition, and overall donations from the alumni and their benefactors. In the 1970s, even though the black athlete became generally accepted, Unfortunately, the position of quarterback remained a sacred symbol of white authority, and schools were reluctant to accept black athletes performing in this role. Again, the University of Georgia provides a very sad tale of the most decorated high school sports athlete in Atlanta history. His name was Anthony Flanagan. He was a starting point guard on the Southwest Atlanta basketball team, which won consecutive state championships in 1973 and 1974. In 1974, as quarterback, he led the team to the state championship in football, thus becoming the last Atlanta public high school to win a state football championship. He was regarded as the top recruit in both sports in the country. Both John Wooden of UCLA and Jim McKay of USC made major pitches for his services, but he hoped to become the first black quarterback at the University of Georgia and transform attitudes about black people in general. Also in 1974, the University of Georgia's basketball coach, Jim Guthrie, signed three All-Americans, including Flanagan and Jackie Dorsey, who left after two years but managed to play in the NBA a few seasons, as well as signing three All-State players, all of whom were black. Later, it became obvious that Coach Guthrie could not comprehend their talent and effectively ruined all of their careers. But worse for Flanagan, it too was clear, even though his talents were greatly enhanced by his ambidextrous passing abilities that the University of Georgia and its fans were not ready. To this day, he is remembered as a legend with a city park named after him. However, the question still remains, what would his sports future have been if he had accepted John Wooden's or Jim McKay's offer? I guess the old adage, go west, young man, should have applied. In 1980, a black athlete who was a native son of Georgia would emerge as the most celebrated in state sports history. His name was Herschel Walker. He played running back rather than quarterback, ultimately winning the Heisman Trophy, and he was from rural South Georgia. His demeanor and attitude were more palatable than a young man from Atlanta. Overall, 
The change in attitude which has facilitated the shift in black athletes staying home has not been an easy transition. The period took courage, sacrifice, strength, as well as patience and cooperation. In the South, there is still a challenge with the hiring of black football coaches and athletic directors. Hopefully, there will be a maturing and changing of minds in these areas as well. Finally, the governing body of major collegiate sports is the National Collegiate Athletic Association, NC2A, and it is finally decided to operate by following the Constitution of the United States. For numerous decades, the NC2A barred student-athletes from transferring from their college programs to another program without penalty. If a student-athlete wanted to transfer schools, he or she would be forced to sit out one year from participating in live games. Most athletes would lose their scholarships at the new school because the new schools did not want to invest in athletes who could not play. The issue became worse with the use of black athletes because many times they were viewed as more valuable. Again, U.S. history through slavery and the abuse of the 14th Amendment has shown black people as chattel or property. The student athlete was effectively captured into indentured servitude, which ironically was the major factor in the American Revolution. Furthermore, UGA, along with the University of Alabama, are the two best examples of abuse through the enforcement of the transfer rule. UGA, as a major sponsor of the NC2A, feared that Georgia State University, the state's largest school with a student enrollment of 53,000, would siphon off their disgruntled players. In addition, its black student population is 41%, and it graduates the most black students of any college and or university in the country. State officials and supporters of the University of Alabama, Crimson Tide, went so far as to orchestrate the shutdown of the University of Alabama Birmingham football program for the same reasons. The NC2A were quite aware of an impending national embarrassment with the potential of boycotting of a national championship game against their methods and practices. Therefore, the NC2A has relaxed the transfer rule and allows student athletes to enter the transfer portal system, which virtually allows transfers without penalty. Free at last. Well, in the final analysis, I guess Dorothy was right. There's no place like home. I would like to thank you for listening to my podcast, The Truth Sayer Report. 1971, the year the black athlete stayed home. Hosted by Jeffrey Hawkins. I would like to end my podcast with a quote from a great American writer and psychotherapist, Virginia Sider. We must not allow other people's limited perceptions to define us. Speak to you soon.